Our first reading tonight is the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. The second reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 19 through 25. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that what I want to do, what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, everyone. Uh, for those that who don't know me, I am Racine Brown. I uh, want to thank Nan for the, asking me the, the opportunity to speak tonight. Uh, thanks for Tori for being liturgist and Katie for playing, everyone who set this up. Um, so describing one's faith journey is somewhat of a daunting task. So what I'm going to do, um, you know, I don't have any fantastic one story, so I'm going to give a wave top tour of what faith has meant to me in my life and where I've been in relation to faith in my life so far. So um, I was born in Columbia, South Carolina, and when I was a baby, we moved to the small town of Chapin, South Carolina, and started out in the Chapin Methodist Church. It was affectionately known at that time as the Ten Steeple Church. Um, it, was a, it was a fairly new church in a town dominated by Lutherans, you know, old German stock. Um, and, you know, my mother grew up Methodist. Uh, her father, her grandfather was a Methodist minister. Um, so, you know, that was the default uh, where we went. But she wasn't quite satisfied. Um, I think the ambiance, in all honesty, threw her. But the thing, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back was this. Sometime when I was around seven, um, the uh, education committee at that church very helpfully presented the children with a book of Jesus nursery rhymes. I don't remember them all, but I remember uh, one of them ended, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again, but Jesus could. 
Uh, I, think, I think the intentions were really honorable. The rhyming, I'm not so sure. Um, in all honesty, I think my mother found the whole thing hokey. Maybe a little too pat. My father, um, who grew up in a Baptist church and incidentally went to a Presbyterian church for a time uh, before marrying my mother, um, was sort of an old school Baptist and he was just offended. He thought it sort of trivialized what God represented. I'm pretty sure he said his mother, who was, even though my, his father was a Baptist preacher, uh, my mother, my grandmother was known as a more staunch Christian than he was. He, I'm pretty sure he said his mother was rolling in her grave. Uh, so, you know, different time for Baptists. So anyway, um, shortly thereafter, we graciously left the Methodist church and started making an appearance at St. Francis of Assisi Episcopal Church in Chapin. Um, it's an interesting church because... Uh, in terms of the service and the liturgy, it's you know, somewhat high church. We do a lot of kneeling and standing and singing. Um, you know, there's real wine in the communion. Uh, but it's a sort of chill ambiance because people are attending these high church services in blue jeans. And occasionally, some people did shorts in the summer. Um, so we went there, and I think we stayed. You know, it was definitely different. Uh, again, a lot of kneeling and standing. Um, I think we stayed because of Father Jeff. Uh, Father Jeff, according to my mother, was a Jewish convert to the Episcopal faith, um, and he was a very intense man. The two things I remember about him was this. Uh, I did choir one year, and uh, when we had choir practice, he often chastised us children for not cleaning up ourselves after snack time before choir practice. And he, he's, he once said the choir director and him would be policing the place. Uh, I didn't know if he was going to wave a baton. Um, to um, so he was a very you know he wasn't a bubbly very intense man but he was very dedicated to faith and spreading the word of Jesus um, and and, he, and in such a way that it wasn't pat and it wasn't always safe because the other thing I remember about Father Jeff is he delivered a sermon something about the thing of what about AIDS and HIV this was in the late eighties um, clinicians didn't know a lot about HIV and how it worked. And, and what it did in the body, other than the fact that it killed people eventually. Um, so he, you know, Jeff put it to the congregation that God's love um, extended to people with HIV too. Um, you know, he really put it out there about well, what does it mean that God loves everybody? Um, the other part of that service, sermon I remember though is that there was no pat resolution. Um, he because the other tidbit I remembered, he said, what about the communion cup? Um, I don't know what the Presbyterians did in the late 80s in St. Francis. There was a cup. There was a plate for the bread, you know, brass plate for the bread. People took a piece of bread and like they knelt at the altar for communion. Again, it was kind of involved. But you, the uh, lay reader would put the uh, cup to the uh, person to take communion, step, they did wipe it with cloth and put it to the next person. So unless someone deliberately dipped, uh, we shared a communion cup. So he put it to, you know, acknowledge that um, because uh, clinicians didn't know at that time whether AIDS could be spread you know, via saliva on a communion cup, um, he put it that this is a real concern. And he left the congregation with that. He didn't say okay, you get a free pass, it is kind of scary, and he didn't say, shame on you, and you will take, you know, he just said, this is an issue that you need to, you need to talk to God, and you need to discern. 
Um, I later learned that some of the vestry, which is the Episcopal equivalent of the session, weren't super fans of Jeff's services. Um, within a year, he was found a new opportunity uh, for ministry somewhere else. And another rector, uh, they, we had Episcopal priests. They would, this one, this level was called a rector. I'm not sure what the difference between that and a vicar is. but it, um, So a new person came in to be our, um, our minister, and she cared enough about the people. She gave occasionally thought-provoking sermons, but never as in-your-face or intellectually engaging as Father Jeff. So why did we stay? Um, we stayed because of the community of St. Francis. Um, because, you know, the, the, no one spun around, no one shouted and leapt in the pulpit, uh, as I've seen some Baptist preachers do. And that's a very stirring way to do a service. Um, but people showed their faith, not through, look at me, works righteousness, but just helped each other. You know, showed care, talked to each other, showed care um, for each other. Uh, one thing, you know, our rector did like her predecessor, she blessed the animals every October. Um, and so, you know, I went, uh, got used to being an Episcopalian, got confirmed eventually. But in high school, um, as maybe someone else may have started to do, I sort of drifted away. Not completely. Um, I didn't attend every, I didn't attend services every week, and for some reason my parents let me get away with that. Uh, I did attend about once a month because I had acolyte duty. Uh, again, formality, Episcopalians love the ceremony, uh, just like their Church of England brethren. So there was a kid, usually an older kid, with a cross on a stick, two kids with lighted torches, um, and if we had a busy day, you know, some little kid, middle schooler, with a banner. The torch for several years involved standing like this um, for about five minutes of the service, uh, you know, on either side of the rector. And um, eventually, I was made de facto crucifer. What I mean is this. I didn't have the gumption to officially sign up and say, I want crucifer training. But I think it was the rector or the youth director said, yeah, you should do this just in case. And I actually served as a crucifer most of the time when I acolyted because one of the girls who did sign up couldn't find it in herself to actually go up front and be the crucifer. So um, I found that even though initially I was reluctant, like I often am, and didn't want to do it, didn't think I could, you know, God saw me through and I was able to stand with the cross where I was supposed to, uh, wash the rector's hands before communion. It's not as hard as it sounds. Um, you know, because people helped me. You know, they showed that faith, and they helped me through um, how to do the crucifer duties. I think the other way I experienced faith as a high schooler at St. Francis was the Episcopal Youth Council. I think it was council. Definitely EYC. It was a youth group. I attended that every Sunday evening. Um, I was much more faithful about attending youth group meetings than I was Sunday morning services. Um, and I remember uh, we had meetings. Sometimes we had lecture series. We once had one on the dangers of Satanism, and I remember, you know, certain music was bad, and, and just, like, kind of watching out um, for things. But we also planned events. Um, we did fundraisers, like car washes. I remember crushing recycling cans and got praise for how many cans I crushed. Um, and, um, you know, so, but it was like being out in the community doing um, to show for service and also fundraisers because we did a beach trip every, um, every May, which was lovely. Um, so, so, yes, faith sometimes was fun, even for a high schooler, um, just not so much uh, during the services. 
Um, but then when I got to college, you know, the drift really started to take hold. There was a bit of an uptick in performance and faith for me freshman year. I um, did go to Episcopal Chapel services uh, Sunday evening. Uh, it might be of some moment that it was Sunday evening and not Sunday morning. Uh, I was kind of recovering from my social calendar on, on uh, Sunday morning, perhaps. Um, and, um, and there was this other phenomenon called intervarsity. I don't know if anyone is familiar with intervarsity, but I found out about it this way. Um, shortly after orientation, before classes started my freshman year, I was walking out of the corridor of my dorm toward the quad, you know, the main pretty grassy area on Wake Forest campus, and I was flanked by three people. I'm not even sure, I can't even remember who the, the two on the flanks were. I think there was one man and one woman. I remember Greg, because he was dead center, about 6'4", and they, and they thrust a pamphlet in my hand and said, have you heard of InterVarsity? And I said, uh, I think so. And they said, we have small group meetings on different days, and we have large group, and you should come and check it out. And I was looking around for help, and I said, sure, I'll come and check it out. And I did. I uh, went to, for that freshman year, I went to small group. Um, it was actually a pretty engaging Bible study. Uh, you know, these are mostly evangelical Christian kids, but there was a Catholic in my Bible study. And, you know, they, were, they, they didn't exclude based on denomination. You know, I think there's, in some ways, conservative beliefs about how one should practice Christianity, but um, in some ways very accepting. I also went to two um, large group sessions on Friday nights, um, you know, in the social calendar. And I only went to two for this reason, because they scared the bejeebers out of me. And here's why. Not doctrinally, um, not so much for conservatism, um, because, you know, I don't think God belongs to a political party. Um, but it was a very different experience than doing church in St. Francis of Assisi Episcopal Church. Um, there, was a, there wasn't much kneeling, but there was a lot of standing up, jumping, singing. Uh, I think the most boring song we sung was Our God is an Awesome God. And just that... I don't know how shallow this makes me, but just that way of doing it, I, I just wasn't ready. And, and intellectually, you know, I don't think there is one right way to do a church service. But from a boy from a small Episcopal congregation, that was, that was just a bit much for the time. Um, I don't know how much my other things on my social calendar conflicted with InterVarsity on Friday evenings, but I went to a few of those sessions more... Um, the small group Bible study my freshman year. Um, but then after that, for some reason, I'm still not 100% sure I, I stopped doing both activities my sophomore year. I didn't really go to any other um, services in the, for the Episcopal Chapel services, and I stopped doing InterVarsity. And, and I call it drip because I didn't have a cognitive break with faith and say, I don't believe this anymore. Um, you know, for a little while, my social calendar took over, and then um, in, the, in the winter break in my sophomore year, um, I got my report card. It didn't look that great. My parents weren't too pleased. And my father took me on a field trip to my uncle's turkey farm. Um, and, um, you know, my uncle showed me the turkeys in the house, and he asked if I wanted to work there. I said, no, thank you. Um, and he asked if I was going to stay in the school, and I said, yes, sir, I am. And I, and I worked through all my doubts about the GPA as a phenomenon and that I might not want to be there, and, buckle, and, and I replaced most of my social calendar on weekends with library time. 
Um, but what I, what I didn't put back in there was church attendance. And that went on for a while, even the Marine Corps. I went to a few chapel services, Lutheran ones, as it turns out, mostly on deployment. Um, you know, I, like I believed in God, but I didn't think about the idea of church not just as a formal place to wear fancy clothes, but community of faith in God. And that went on uh, after I got out of the Marine Corps. I went to graduate school. Um, I met my lovely wife, Heather, then girlfriend. And neither of us, I don't think, regularly went to church in Columbia, South Carolina, where we met um, in a master's program. Then we moved down to Tampa, um, where I uh, studied for a PhD in applied anthropology, University of South Florida. And I think something stuck within her because she grew up in a Presbyterian church. In fact, her father is a retired pastor of two churches in Millersburg, well, Millersburg and some even smaller town down south, Clark, I believe it's called, um, a yoked church. So, you know, church attendance wasn't a question for her um, growing up. Uh, I don't think anyone breathed fire down her neck, but they all just went. And I think she found something missing, so she uh, started going to Temple Terrace Presbyterian Church in a bedroom community of Tampa, where we eventually moved to. And after a year or so, she asked me to come, and I started going to. And at first, we just attended Sunday services, but you know, after so many years of drifting out of community of faith, I started kind of drifting back in. We attended services regularly, um, and then. The pastor at uh, Temple Terrace Presbyterian Church left, and they, uh, not surprisingly, called an interim pastor, who I think some people wished could have been our permanent pastor. He was, uh, like, his, his sermons weren't loud. He didn't leap and shout. But they really, you know, they got you in the heart through capturing the mind. Um, this, I mean, this is bold. One of the first sermons he preached was about having a panic attack from going to where he was a call pastor in Tennessee and moving down to Tampa Bay. And if you, I say that, that, that sounds nuts to me, that she would meet some people and say, hey, I had a hard time. Uh, you know, what I was taught in the Marine Corps, you say, yes, I have a leadership plan. Here are my expectations. I'm going to be great and flawless. And even though I've, if I'm a number struck inside, you're never going to see it. Um, but he told us about it, and it worked. But, you know, because, of course, he tied it to how his faith got him through and, and carried on. And so he caught both Heather and my attention right away. And then one sermon he devoted, um, kind of departed from the lectionary and said, hey, we've got a process of how you're going to get a next pastor. And the first thing before your PNC is we're going to do some research. Uh, we're going to need a survey, do some focus groups. Um, and I button-hooked him after the service and said, hey, uh, I can help with that. Um, because I had spent the last several year, years learning how to do just those sorts of things. So, um, you know, I started doing faith again by doing as well as listening and discerning. Uh, I helped formulate the survey. I moderated one of the focus groups, analyzed all the data, and shockingly enough, someone said I should be on the PNC. Uh, I wasn't <laughs> looking for it, but... Um, <laughs> But I, I, you know, I guess kind of cornered again. But it was one woman, and that's all she needed. And you know, because she was a stalwart of the church, and I said, uh, "Sure, Carol, I'll do, um, I'll do the PNC." Um, did the best I could. It wasn't, I wasn't, didn't read every part of every resume or whatever you actually call the pastoral resumes. There's a term I forget now. 
Um, but you know, I did the best I could. Attended all the meetings. Um, stayed silent most of the time because you know, not to talk for its own sake. But when I had an idea or something to consider, um, and eventually uh, we selected our next pastor. Um, and about that time, uh, Carol came up to me again and said, "I think it's your turn to be on session." I found no help, so I said, okay, I'll run. Um, and what happened at Temple Terrace Presbyterian Church during the time we were there, typically if someone ran for a spot on the session, they had a very high chance of being elected to that spot <laughs> on the session. It was uh, ra rather than, you know, prestige, I won, let's throw the balloon party. It was more tag, you're it, I felt. So I served on the session. Um, I served on the Faith and Evangelism Committee. Uh, and when I could, I did other things outside of my committee. The church held a community dinner um, about once a month, and I came and didn't do anything intellectual. I served chicken or hot dogs or, um, you know, cleaned up tables. Uh, you know, tried to clean up after most, uh, you know, congregational dinners. Um, but to me, it grounded me in faith, you know, not doing to be praised for works and look at me, but just feeling part of something, that it wasn't just listening to words and pondering, as important as that really is. And it wasn't profane. I have faith, and I've never broken any rules, and uh, never looked upon a woman askance, as far as you know of. Um, you know, it, it wasn't like that, but it, it was, you know, learning and discerning um, and, and, and doing as well. And it's been a great experience because I think being at that church was holistic in, t in terms of how one lives faith and shows faith as well as talks about it. Uh, you know, I'm wondering, I, I still wonder if that's a more effective way to convince people to give God a try than pouncing on them and putting a pamphlet in their hand. You know, and, and I, you know, I don't have the right way, but for me, it's a more effective way to think about faith. Um, and two, you know, I've, I've been grateful for the opportunity to not just have received wisdom, but you know, being in the Presbyterian Church, both that one and this one, have taught me how to think, how to discern, how to work through one's doubts. That you know, doubt isn't a lack of faith. Doubt is par for the course for any adult who has. You know, it's easy to be faithful without doubt as a child, um, but when you start reading the first few chapters of Genesis. And then reading biology textbooks that say all this stuff took a lot longer and looked a bit differently. Um, you know, what do you think? What, what, uh, and so you start to ponder those questions about, okay, did this literally happen exactly as described? Is this a description detail? Or is this just a way to tell, to, to ground us? To fund, you know, like stories to um, talk about fundamental truths. And in some ways it blends to what I've learned as an anthropologist because, you know, one thing I've studied about, at least in textbooks, is what the stories people tell themselves and each other say about them and about that society. Um, and what stories that you could prove aren't, didn't literally happen in a factual way can still tell you about the world and the universe and faith. Um, so that kind of brings me to um, how did we end up here? Uh, we were going along in Temple Terrace, you know, had jobs most of the time. Um, and 
you know, Heather worked for the museum for many years, and it was a good experience, but eventually she um, decided she needed to change and wanted to be closer to home. So applying to various places in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and got a job at Ohio State University. Uh, remote for a little bit of time, but they said, hey, uh, fall of 2021, you need to move somewhere around Columbus to where you can commute. So we bought a house, um, sight unseen. We did tour it virtually. Uh, thanks to my in-laws, some Heather's friends, realtors, video technology. So we saw it virtually, but we stepped foot in the house for the first time the day we moved in. Um, so that's how we got to Columbus. Um, <laughs> still the question of how did we get to Covenant? Well, um, my mother-in-law recommended the place. Um, she will attend a Sunday service mostly in a Presbyterian church, wherever she and, and my father-in-law happen to be traveling. And it's not optional. You know, she'll find a place, and everyone's with her who will attend. Um, so they came here at some point um, in late June or early July. I thought it was a nice place. We should check it out. So we did. Uh, and we kept telling ourselves we should check out other churches as well. Um, but we kept coming back here. We did do one um, service at uh, Hilliard Presbyterian Church, uh, Seemed like a lovely service, about the same amount of time as coming here, but we came back here. And why is that? Uh, we came back here because of the community. Uh, you know, not everyone is in political lockstep. Uh, not everyone thinks the same thing about, um, you know, how people should do things. But the idea that, you know, that faith is a community of all different kinds of people, and being in a loving, accepting church means even embracing those who, you know, certain establishment figures tell us aren't too smurfy, aren't, aren't like that sort of people that we need, to, you know, that aren't normal. But hey, they're still God's children anyway. Um, you know, we embrace people and we have, you know, associate pastors who have the nerve to say even the most odious people like Vladimir Putin is one of God's children too. And that, that's something I think that would offend a lot of people. It offends me. But, but to really try and not just preach the faith and be comfortable and be nice in a superficial way and only have the right sort, but really try and reach out to those who need faith most. And if we fail, accept ourselves, accept God's grace, get up the next day and try it again. And that's how we got here. That's my faith journey so far. Thank you for listening.